Welcome to the dinner party download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow psychiatrist. Interrupting cow psychiatrist. Moo, tell me about your mother. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversation. You just got a joke from Rachel Bloom, creator and star of the musical comedy TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That'll help break the ice. Mm-hmm. Later, she'll answer your etiquette questions and lead us in a sing-along. Plus, world-renowned DJ Steve Aoki stops by with the Dinner Party playlist. Also coming up, we chat with Raul Peck, director of a new Oscar-nominated documentary about writer James Baldwin. <laughs> and I hope you don't mind, I've also invited my cold along today. Oh, that's nice. I mean, I wish you'd RSVP'd for two. Well, it but... kind of invited itself, actually. But no matter. We'll figure it out. But first, let's make small talk. All week long, you've heard these headlines. In the wake of President Trump's immigration ban, protests all across the country, reaction from around the world. Beyonce announced on Instagram that she and Jay-Z are going to have twins. The internet went crazy. Judge Neil Gorsuch. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Kai Rizdal. Get out. He is the host of Marketplace (laughs) and also the new podcast called Make Me Smart along with Molly Wood. And Kai, why don't you first make us smart about make us smart? So, so here's what happened. We Molly's our senior tech correspondent at Marketplace, and whenever she came on, I always used to say, "So Molly, make me smart on X, Y, and Z." Uh, mm-hmm. And she basically came to uh, Deb Clark, the big honcho uh, at Marketplace, and said, "Listen, mm-hmm. I want to do a podcast with Kai, and I want to call it Make Me Smart." Uh, mm. And and, and it's, you said, who the heck are you? <laughs> not, don't don't assert my authority. It, it's going to be the two of us chit chatting about stuff and just sort of dissecting the news of the day because Molly and I are both news junkies. So she was like, "It is so difficult making Kai smart that I need a whole series." Ah <laughs> oh, shucks. Um, yeah, so we're on like week two, and so far so good. All right, excellent. Well, yeah. Welcome to the podcast Thank you. world. We're happy to have it's, you. It's it's a whole new thing, man. But also, you're supposed to give us a small talk story. So tell us, what are you going to be talking about at your weekend gathering? I love this story so much, mostly because it reminds me of my own dogs. There is a scientifically bona fide study out there. It's in the Journal of Physiology and Behavior. It's out of Scotland, and it goes like this. Dogs prefer reggae and soft rock music. It's like scientifically validated. Wait, how do they even know that? Did the dogs right? have uh, red, yellow, green hacky sacks? What? So, so what they did was they, <laughs> they, they took a bunch of dogs in the kennels of the Scottish SCPA, and they put heart mm-hmm. monitors on them because okay. scientists have too much time on their hands. <laughs> and they played different kinds of music. Uh-huh. And what happened was when you play reggae and soft rock, the dog's heart rates go down, okay. and they become less stressed. And you can see why, if you're in the animal care world, that's all a good right. thing. I mean, obviously, all of us want animals to be not stressed. But sure. if you have to manage a whole kennel full of dogs, you want them reasonably mellow. That's right. You don't want an uprising. Dog, yeah. Dogs are into the quiet storm, That's right. it seems. This actually reminds me, there was a story that we, we had on a while ago. They, they did a study on cats under anesthesia, and they were more calm under anesthesia when they played classical music. Oh, that's so interesting. Dogs and cats mm. are different. That's so crazy that cats... Cats would like that because violin strings are made from cat gut sometimes. That seems <laughs> oh very God. naive. Wow. But doesn't it sound right to you that cats are these kind of like, oh, classical Classical, music. yes, yes. And dogs and, are like, yeah, man, just like, let's chill. And, and also, but I have a feeling Pitbull still prefer Pitbull, our favorite musician from Florida. <laughs> Kai Rizdal, thanks for the small talk. Anytime, you guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a ski resort where it's snowing frozen daiquiri. 
Watch out on those slopes. Mm-hmm. It's icy. Let's start with the history. This week back in 1690, money got a lot easier to carry around for Americans. No, it wasn't the birthday of the credit card, Michelle Philippi explains. Those dollar bills in your wallet wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Nine Years' War. That was one of a bunch of wars between France and Britain, which, among other things, involved fighting in what's now called Canada. The British wanted folks in their American colonies to fight as soldiers on their side, which was fine with the colonists, as long as they got paid for it. But in the Massachusetts colony, they couldn't get paid because there was barely any money, literally. Back then, the only form of cash was coins, and America's British overlords had recently shut down the Massachusetts coin factory. Of course, the Brits could have made some coins in England, but they needed that precious metal for the war. Then some genius, whose name is lost to time, had a big idea. Instead of coins, officials could give soldiers paper certificates that could be redeemed for coins later when, you know, there actually were any. America's first paper currency was issued. You can probably guess what happened next. After a while, the people of Massachusetts just started using the certificates as legal tender, since they were worth just as much as the coins they represented. Other colonies liked the idea, and soon all New England was paying for stuff with paper. Of course, we still use paper money today, though it's a little harder to counterfeit. Among the holdings of the National Museum of American History is an old Massachusetts certificate worth two shillings, to which some enterprising colonial criminal took a pen and added a zero, making it worth 20 shillings. All right, so that's the history. Now for the drink to go along with it. I'm joined by Ezra Starr. She is bar manager of Drink. That's right, it's called Drink. And it's in Boston, the heart of the once moneyless Massachusetts Bay Colony. Ezra, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I really wanted to use ingredients that were available at the time, one of which is rum. Okay. So it's a molasses-based rum, a little bit of cinnamon, some lemon, and some sherry, which was also very big at the time. And so can you tell me how you're combining these ingredients and and what it's going to look like when it's done? Oh, yeah. So we're taking the molasses, a little bit of the cinnamon and lemon and the sherry, and then we are shaking it together, like a shaken daiquiri or something of that nature, Mm -hmm. and uh, pouring it into a nice tall glass and garnishing it with a little bit of shredded money. (laughs) Really? Yeah. uh, So we're right down the street from um, the Fed. So they shred and get rid of all the old money and A friend of mine works there and gave me a little handful, about $1,000 in a cup, so I decided that would be a great garnish. That is amazing that your friend just has handfuls of shredded bills. Can you consume money? Uh, No, so it's purely aesthetic. Right, because if you consume money, you could probably then sue drink and actually receive real money. Yeah, so uh, we won't do that. Okay, so we're talking about money. You know, traditionally, people tip a dollar on a drink. Yeah. What, you know, what, what, what do you think is the appropriate tip? So we live in a really college town. So okay. this is something I think about quite a bit and try to educate every September uh-huh. when uh, the new students come. I think that it's a dollar a drink, but if the bill goes up past 20 bucks, then it should be 20% like you would in a restaurant. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I was thinking. And then I just have another question for you. You said you're in a college town. So do you get a lot of cash at the bar or people have they moved on to plastic? Well, you know, it's mostly plastic and now starting more and more to be cell phones. Interesting. Yeah, little electronic payments. 
So in the future, you're going to have to use shredded cell phones and put that on the top of your cocktail. That sounds like that might be not the best idea. <laughs> but I will do it if we can figure out a way that's not poisonous or horrible. Ezra Starr from the Boston bar called Drink. And uh, people, quick tip. If you make that cocktail at home, we recommend not shredding $1,000. Mm-hmm. It's a bad idea. Maybe use your student loan documents. <laughs> that's not any better of an idea. But to find <laughs> the rest of that recipe and all our recipes, head to dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the soundtrack, in which a fine musician DJs your dinner party. And this time we have an actual DJ manning the controls for once. He's one of the most popular in the world, in fact. Steve Aoki spins and mixes electro house music at massive parties from Las Vegas to Beijing. He collaborates with the biggest names in pop music. And a concert film about his work called Steve Aoki, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, is up for a Grammy next weekend. Here's Steve with a playlist that'll probably wake your neighbors up at 3 in the morning. Sorry, not sorry. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Steve Aoki, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song is Block Party's Banquet. It brings me back a lot of memories, and it brings me back to a time when I first started DJing as well. So I was throwing these little parties in L.A., and, you know, I get all excited and giddy when I hear this song. Block Party are from England, and it's led by one of the most incredible vocalists, Kelly Okereke, if I'm saying it correctly. The drummer is incredible. I could even tell you the BPM tempo is 150. The way he hits drums, I mean, when it goes into a high-energy stage, it just sounds fuller. Recording drums myself, I realize that, like, it's, I should not be playing drums. <laughs> the next song in the Dinner Party soundtrack is New Noise by Refused. And I chose a second because I want to amp up the party. The Shape of Punk to Come, their album came out in 1998, and it was by far just one of the most important albums of that period of time. And New Noise is one of my favorite songs of all time. And it's loud, and it's outspoken, and it's jaw-dropping. Dennis Lixon is the lead singer of Refused. He both sings and screams. He's screaming for change. He's screaming with passion. So now at this point, everyone's turning up. Actually, that that word doesn't exist in 1998. (laughs) It's time. So everyone is just rocking out. And it's just raucous. Everyone's just bouncing off each other. It's almost like when you're at a rally and you're, everyone's like together in unison saying the same thing. That kind of energy. But it's a fun energy. My third song in the Dinner Party soundtrack is Little Uzi Vert's Money Longer. So I picked 
Money Longer because this song in 2016 was my big party playlist song in general. When I DJ'd, this was my go-to song. Yeah, it do not matter. Turn to a savage, pocket got fatter. She got me daddy. Smoking that gas, got all that zombie. She on a powder. So Little Uzi Vert is from Philly. He's got great melody. He's got a great voice. You know, kind of a savage. Pocket got fast. She kind of dies. When I work with him in the studio, he doesn't write anything down. He's just in the booth in his own train of thought. He's in his own world, and he's just spitting stuff out as it comes. And so whatever he's experiencing, he's putting out there. It feels very live, you know, and, and it's like something something really cool about Lil Uzi Vert and how he works. All right, my last song for the Dinner Party soundtrack is my song with Louis Tomlinson, Just Hold On. This isn't a song that I made for the dance floor for the festival. This is a song that it's all about connecting with people. And Louis' lyrics are, you know, about getting through the hard times. And, you know, we all need that kind of support to just move forward. Dinner Party soundtrack from Steve Aoki. His concert film, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, is up for a Grammy, and it's currently streaming on Netflix. And by the way, the vocals you're hearing are from Lewis Tomlinson of One Direction. That's right. The band. Steve, Steve went from Swedish hardcore to a boy band. <laughs> He's a very <laughs> eclectic fellow. He's going to create new Vikings on the block. Check them out. Well, I hope so. All right, coming up, actor Rachel Bloom <laughs> of the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend decides to soup up our interview. I'll give sound effects. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We have some great guests this hour. Later, Raul Peck fills us in on his Oscar-nominated documentary about James Baldwin. And we hear a new song from Arcade Fire featuring the great Mavis Staples. But first, it would be rude if we didn't get right to our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is actor, writer, and musical number belter-outer Rachel Bloom. A few years back, she set the internet ablaze with a heartfelt and highly vulgar musical tribute to the you late... You can talk while he's doing this, too. It's totally okay. Oh, I can? Yeah. I'll give sound effects. Okay. Okay, that would be fun. She set the internet ablaze <laughs> with a heartfelt <laughs> and highly vulgar musical tribute to the late sci-fi author Ray Bradbury. Ooh. She also put out a couple of albums of musical comedy. Oh, and then I didn't know that she teamed up with Aline Brosh McKenna mm. to create Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Ah. It is a musical TV <laughs> series. It's one of the most acclaimed and binge-watched in all the land. Ooh. It stars Rachel, my sidekick here, as the irrepressible, <laughs> romantically delusional Rebecca Bunch, um. who, well, let's let the theme song tell the story. Oh. I was working hard at a New York job, making dough, but it made me blue. Mm. 
day I was crying a lot and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. Can you guys stop singing for just a second? She's so broken inside. The situation's a lot more nuanced than that. C-R-A-Z-Y. Okay, we get it. Crazy <laughs> it's great that that does all the explaining for us. It yes. does Saved all the exactly. It saves you a lot of. So today, uh, the Oscars nominations oh, came right, out. Right, right. La La Land had something like fourteen nominations. Yeah. Hamilton still is ringing in everyone's ears. Yeah. All these musicals, and you have a musical TV show. You studied musical theater to yeah. a certain extent. What is going on? Every time there's like something new in musicals, like is this the return of the musical? And. Um, I like to think it is. Mm. I hope it is. I mean, they're two great works of art. I mean, I think Hamilton did what musicals used to do and took show tunes and made them sound like pop songs because mm-hmm. show tunes used to be what pop music was. Yeah. It's like the so, popular songbook, basically. Yeah. And so, and then I think a lot of people have a love for musicals. It's just a question will anyone make it? And of course, Damien Chazelle had already made Whiplash. The La La Land director. Exactly. It's not like he he tried to make La La Land before Whiplash, but no one cared. Yeah. But now he made Whiplash, and so they're like, oh. And then, of course, he has two A-list celebrities in it. And then as far <laughs> as my show, I mean, you're making I'm songs, still amazed that we get to do it. You're making songs and A-list celebrities. Um, yeah, uh, Eventually, sh- right? Oh, sure. So uh, let's. I want to talk about the show for a second. Your character, Rebecca, suddenly moves across the country to stalk her ex. Um, she quits a job, a high-paying job, moves to West Covina, all of which is funny. But at the same time, she's dealing with mental illness. How do you calibrate those two types of zaniness in the show, one that's amusing and one that's born of a real desperation there? The two have always been pretty um, together, part and parcel. Is that the right way to use part and parcel? Yeah, sure. The two we'll have been so. always well done. been The pretty... public radio audience will correct you, there you either go. way. Uh, the two have always been been pretty part and parcel to me with wackiness comes inherent sadness I think that you Mm. need that to counterbalance the wackiness and so I don't know it was always kind of inherent in the show we were wanting to do because the premise is so wacky to make it real you have to deconstruct it and say okay why would a woman actually move across the country but Mm. why make it real it's a musical typically I think of musicals as being escapist yeah well you want to have also a contrast to when the musical numbers happen Mm. and so there's musical numbers to escape from what you need something to escape from. Well, that's a, that's a question. When, how do you know when? There's like one or two songs per episode. How do you know when to drop a song in? The best songs come from the emotional high and low points of the episode. Hmm. It's like how you write any musical. It's like, when is the emotion too strong for the character to merely speak? Hmm. When do they need to sing? But there's also a wonderful example of a magical character that you just kind of pull out of thin air to sing songs who embodies the Santa Ana winds, which we get here in Los Angeles every now and then. Where did that come from? He becomes like a narrator for the show. Yeah, we were talking about a structure for that episode. We had a lot of different structures, and we were thinking of genres we hadn't done. We hadn't done Four Seasons Frankie Valley, and we were talking about how, like, we... It sounds like winds. Yeah. And we were like, oh, we can have that keep coming back. And the wind, Santa Ana winds are making everything weird. Hello there, it's me. I'm the Santa Ana winds. I cause allergies. I also make things weird. A little bit about me on my hot, hot breeze. That originates from high pressure. Well, as we mentioned before, you came to prominence with a song called 
Me, Ray Bradbury, which we decided qualifies you to tell people how to behave for some reason. Yeah. Are you ready for these questions? I'm so ready for it and how I'm going to. <laughs> All right. You have no idea how ill-equipped <laughs> I am to answer etiquette questions. I'm so excited. We have some idea. Our first one's from James in Austin, Texas, uh, but we actually got a number of questions on this topic. His question is, what is the appropriate level of Google stalking before slash after a first date? Should it be limited to just the online profiles publicly available about the date? Should it include obsessively skimming all of their friends and LinkedIn business contacts? Here's the thing. It's all public. I think what you do when you over-Google someone is... Over-Google. Over-Google. The thing is, you don't want to be weird and be like, I Googled you. Mm. So when they tell Mm. you a fact about themselves, like, oh, I work here. My mom's name is this. These are my friends. I'm interested in this. You then have to fake surprise. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Which is not only hard to do... But also, you want to learn about this person in the context of a relationship, yeah. right? I mean, I think the best way to go about doing it is to have a friend Google them and just be like, you let me know Give you a dossier? if there's anything I should worry about. Hmm. Oh, so oh. they kind of they kind of uh, make sure that they're not a psychotic. Make sure they're not like psychotic. Subcontract the Googling. <laughs> you know, subcontract mm-hmm. the Googling. Because mm-hmm. you want to be safe and really also get a friend who knows you well. So it's like, hey, you're really... Uh, into Harry Potter and the person's just like, I hate people into yeah. Harry Potter. Alan That's Rickman, I hate mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hate Alan, which is mm-hmm. like, no one should date that person. No. But it's just, that's something to point out. All right, there you go, James. Get someone else to do your dirty work. Here is something from JR in Chicago. Completely different topic. Should a 15-time Jeopardy champion be allowed to play at a friendly bar trivia tournament? <laughs> that seems like a breach of pub trivia etiquette, no? Uh, yeah, I agree. I would say he would be... um You'd have to create your own separate little contest for him where it's like, okay, so you, whoever, like, if you get if you get more points than this guy, uh huh, no? Yeah, no, no I like No, it's like, that. how is this someone so, you become so good at something you're not allowed to do it again? Yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. You're not well, gonna it let, depends you're not... what the prize is. If it's like a monetary prize, mm. that's not fair. Yeah. If the mm. prize is like a gag penis hat or whatever, <laughs> it depends what the prize is. Okay. But I mean, like, you wouldn't run, you know, if you're playing a friendly flag football game, maybe the pro football player doesn't get to play. That. Well, and what does he do? He gets snow cones he gets for everybody? No, that's the ridiculous. He could play as long as everyone knows it. You know, like, I just think, like, going and keeping it silent and yeah. then, like, winning and taking your $5,000. This is very good pub trivia. Yeah. Um, M- I just maybe think, a shirt or like something to identify them. Yeah, if you're, like, upfront about it, it, it just depends on what the prize is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's something from C in Claremont, California. This is a dire situation. All these people are only using initials, which yeah. is... They're, they're, <laughs> I seem a little nervous. I like to imagine that these are all movie stars. They, uh, <laughs> so, see, that Charlton would be... Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston in Claremont, California, right? Uh-huh. Some of my longtime friends are getting married this spring. There's an excellent chance both me and my ex will be invited. Mm-hmm. I have a very casual email relationship with my ex, but haven't told him I have a new beau. Do I need to tell him before we both arrive at the wedding that I won't be traveling solo? She need to tell her ex. Uh, yeah, I'd mention it. Really? Yeah. Why? If you have sure, a casual have email relationship and you're going to run into him and you're going to bring a date to the wedding. Yeah. Just, Wh- just be like, hey, yo, um, just not to be weird, like, I'm just going to see what this wedding. I just want to, you know, like, I'm bringing my new dude. Just didn't want it to be weird when you met him. Yeah. The only. It's just thi- a casual thing. Well, because the thing that concerns me is that if C is asking this, C might still have some residual feelings and is maybe being an emotional vampire when it comes to. <laughs> sees X. Ooh. And oh. so you need to own it up front. Just like, I am bringing someone, but, they will but, be there, and I love them, not you. But oh, if you, I, that's what I, th- with all this stuff, I think if you just do it casually, where it's like, you title the email, subject line, heads up, and it's like, hey, uh, super psyched to like. Heads up? That's not casual. Heads up. 
That's pretty casual. No, you how about, how about like, hey, wedding or wedding? Okay, maybe what I would do is honestly title it Wedding Fun and then just be like, yeah, I was so psyched to see you at these weddings. Uh, just wanted to uh, give you the heads up. I am bringing a date. Just didn't want it to be weird when you met him. He's a super nice guy. Uh, he's way better in bed than you. He's just and, like so uh, much better. And he, I think he's the one. It's always good. Also in case that this guy was hoping to hook up. Because you don't want him getting, you don't want a 500 days of summer type situation. Yeah, I think you go with wedding fun, see. <laughs> just wedding, wedding fun. <laughs> wedding fun. And uh, here's one last question. This is from uh, Ben in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. What is the best way to get people to burst into song? Uh, to, to start singing a song everyone knows. If you're just like, hey, what's this? Sweet Caroline. Uh, ba, ba, ba. Good times never felt so good. This is so working. Good, so, so good. good. Ba, ba, ba. Exactly. Sweet. Look, I'm going to do harmony. Ba, ba, ba. Ba. One of the it's only really songs yeah. where you do horn parts when you're singing, you know? That's Usually true. you don't it's do the great. instrumentation. No. Thank God you. bless you, Neil Diamond. That's and, how you do it. Uh, thank you for this subject line etiquette fun. <laughs> etiquette fun. Etiquette fun. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Bloom, she won a Golden Globe for her starring role in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The season finale airs this weekend on CW. Season one is bingeable on Netflix. And if you have an etiquette question like, is it rude to subject the audience to impromptu karaoke in the middle of your radio show? We'll find someone who can answer it. Someone who isn't us even. That's right. Would be good. Send all queries to dinnerpartydownload.org. Raul Peck is a Haitian filmmaker. He might be best known for Lumumba, a fictional movie about the first prime minister of the Congo. He's also earned a raft of awards for his documentaries and short films, many of which tackle political themes. His latest doc, I Am Not Your Negro, is up for an Oscar. Ten years in the making, it's about the late great author James Baldwin, and it's based on an unfinished manuscript of his called Remember This House. But it's really about the racial divide in America. The movie uses archival footage, interview clips, and excerpts of Baldwin's work, read by Samuel Jackson. When I spoke with Peck, I asked him how the idea for the film began. Most of my projects are really personal. I never start a project without being motivated by something that happened or the way I felt. Mm. And, and the Baldwin project came at a moment where I felt that there was no discussion anymore in this country that the majority thought, well, listen, the civil rights movement is uh, institutionalized. Uh, We have uh, Black History Month. We have even Martin Luther King Day. We have a museum in D.C. now, et cetera, et cetera. So we made it. And in reality, it's not the case. The problems are still there. They are even worse today. So... uh, To go back to Baldwin for me was, you know, how do I bring those words? How do I bring those important analysis to this present generation? That was the agenda. That was the idea. It was how do I put Baldwin centered stage? Well, you certainly do that in this documentary because everything we hear is either an interview with Baldwin or his writing. Uh, what, What do you think makes his writing so powerful? Baldwin was the first one to find a way to write about not only the black reality of this country, but also the black-white whole reality of this country, like a Faulkner would have done. And Mm. Baldwin had to find his own words, his own written. That's when I saw the photograph. 
on every newspaper kiosk on that wide tree-shaped boulevard in Paris were photographs of 15-year-old Dorothy Counts being reviled and spat upon by the mob as she was making her way to school in Charlotte, North Carolina. There was unutterable pride, tension, and anguish in that girl's face as she approached the halls of learning with history jeering at her back. It made me furious. His phrase are so full of intensity, of humor, of humanity, and he speaks as well to an intellectual as the man in the streets. That's a rare faculty. You know, I want to talk about the, the formal nature of this documentary. This isn't your typical documentary. It, it doesn't include talking heads. There are no extensive interviews with people who knew Baldwin. It is just Baldwin's words, center stage. Exactly. Why did you decide to make it that way? Well, because the project from the start was about Baldwin. I knew that I had to put him in direct contact with an audience, not through any talking heads or any scholar or any critic that would explain who he is. Uh, so uh, filmically, it, it was not an easy project to approach. And thanks God that Baldwin is an incredible film critic. Yeah, uh, your documentary incorporates lots of clips from movies he writes about. Yes. You know, he wrote a lot of essays on Sidney Poitier, and he pointed out as well the contradiction of Hollywood when, you know, a film like Guess Who Comes to Dinner? Uh, I remember as a young man, I you know, it was incredible because that's the first time I was seeing a, a, a handsome-looking black man intelligent who went to college on the screen yeah and for once you know we could actually see them i fell in love with your daughter and as incredible as it may seem she fell in love with me and we flew back to san francisco to see if you or mrs Straton would have any objections if we got married i was somehow proud but at the same time i felt something was wrong without really understanding what. And Baldwin gives you the answer because he tells you, you know, yes, they are using Sydney against us, meaning us, the rest of mm. this population, because they were putting an example in front of you that in order to be accepted by society, you have to be handsome, you have to speak English well, you have to be mm. a very uh, uh, intellectual man, and otherwise you will never get the girl. So this, this is yeah. basically what the film was telling you. Sidney Poitier, as a black artist and a man, is also up against the infantile, furtive sexuality of this country. Both he and Harry Belafonte, for example, are sex symbols, though no one dares admit that still less to use them as any of the Hollywood he-men are used. So what Baldwin's teach you is that film is not innocent and cannot be innocent. You know, be critical. You know, ask yourself, what I, am I being served with? And what yeah. is the, the purpose of it? Because there is a purpose in making you, you know, consume popcorns and, and sure. coke uh, while you yeah. are watching a, a blockbuster. There is a purpose in that. Yeah, Baldwin says entertainment is often difficult to distinguish from the use of narcotics. Exactly. And he wrote that people. 40, 50 years ago. You can imagine yeah. what it means today. 
Uh, yeah. That's why, you know, anything in this film, every single phrase, every single word is, is like, uh, it's dynamite. It's dynamite. Yeah. It's, you know, a hundred times more uh, uh, tragic. So your movie comes out in a year where there are a number of excellent documentaries about the black experience. There's the 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay, uh, O.J. Made in America, and then there are also these critically acclaimed fiction movies, including Moonlight. Yes, extraordinary film, yes. What do you think Baldwin would make of this year's mainstream media offerings? Baldwin, what he would do is go directly to the fundamentals. This is just by chance that there are those many films uh, mm. this year. But it's not structural, because structurally, mm. it's still the same people who are deciding what film should be made. So as mm -hmm. long as people of colors, women, gays, etc., do not have the power to greenlight mm. a story, nothing will change. Let me give you a very, uh, you know, example. How do I go to a studio? I have a half an hour to pitch my movie. Yeah. If I'm going to spend 25 minutes to explain to this 35-year-old studio boss, this is who Baldwin is. You know, this already yeah. 15 minutes. And then this is why it is important. By the way, yeah. not only for me, but also for you. Mm. This is another 10 minutes. And then I have three to five minutes to pitch my actual project. You know, you can't win. You can't win. And that's the permanent situation here. And that's why, you know, when Baldwin is turning the camera to this vast, uh, heedless majority, you know, he's telling them, listen, by the way, this is your problem too. And this is primarily your problem because you invented it. You are the cause of it and you're controlling yeah. that. And if you don't fix it, you're going to go down with everybody else. Because there cannot be a dream if the majority of the people in this country are not living that dream. Raul Peck, his documentary is called I Am Not Your Negro. It's up for an Oscar, and rightly so. By the way, Brendan mentioned another Best Documentary nominee, 13th, from director Ava DuVernay. We spoke to her about that a few weeks back, and you can hear the interview and all our past episodes by subscribing to our podcast via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we return, we'll hear a new song from Arcade Fire, and Rico tastes the dish that puts a little heat in Hotlanta. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, an hour of all that is excellent in culture this week. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, along with my cold, who I'm calling Todd. Hi, Todd. Right now. Yeah. In a few minutes, we'll spin the latest track from the band Arcade Fire, and comedians John Early and Kate Berlant list their favorite tales of Hollywood desperation. But first, it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And, uh, Brendan, I'm from Pittsburgh. Yes, as you're fond of reminding everyone. The Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Not in the Super Bowl this weekend, may have noticed. I'm sorry, I guess. Yes, you are. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, that is because the New England Patriots beat the Steelers a couple weeks ago. Does that make you want to cry? I'm not going to cry. <laughs> but, you know, earlier in the show, we featured a cocktail made for us at a Boston bar. 
So mm-hmm. I figured it would be only fair to represent New England's opponents, the Atlanta Falcons, on this episode as well in food form. Not and out of resentment at all. I just wanted to be fair. Okay, sure. So Use our your produ- words, Rico. <laughs> so our producers, Krista and Jackson, looked into the food culture of Atlanta, and they learned a big thing there and throughout the South, actually, is what is called pimento cheese, which mm. also happens to be showing up on menus all over my current hometown of L.A. right now. So I went over to the restaurant Plan Check and spoke to executive chef Sean Yance, who serves it in sandwich form. I first asked him to tell me the classic pimento recipe. It originally started with grated cheddar cheese, mayonnaise, and chopped pimento. Now, what what is pimento? My whole life I've been eating pimento stuffed olives. Pimientos what? were a imported roasted red pepper. In the early, I don't know, 1900s or so, when imported pimientos from Spain started being too expensive, Georgia took on, um, they were farming red peppers and making pimientos. This is where the eye kind of got dropped and it started to be pimentos. Oh, to, to distinguish it from the Spanish? I, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure how that happened, but that's around the time that it started to happen. All right, so you said the basic recipe of pimento cheese is uh, shredded cheddar cheese, mayonnaise, pimento. Uh, I'm assuming that it has, you know, changed since then. There are a lot of variations. Oh, I think there's a ton of variations on it. You know, through the rest of the 1900s up until um, like the early 40s or 50s, I think, it was still kind of a classic home economic recipe. You know, I can kind of remember growing up and my mom making pimento cheese for like parties or, you know, like stuffing celery. You know, I don't really remember the pimento cheese sandwich as much as the party favors. It's like a a dip almost or a stuffing. Exactly. And it kind of went away for a while, I think, in the 80s and 90s. Sure. I mean, it's it, as you say, it sounds almost like a 50s Betty Crocker cookbook kind of thing. Exactly. And then r- right around the, the 2000s again, there was kind of this resurgence. And Why do you think that is? I think it started with Georgia. I was doing some research, and I think it started back in, in Georgia again. The Georgia State Cheese Board or something like that brought up, hey, we should start this whole thing on the resurgence of... Pimento cheese. You know? It's like, a, it's like a, a hometown pride thing. Right, right, right. And of course, that's kind of something that chefs kind of dig on. If there's something that was in the past, let's do our version of it, and let's see how it works with our food. And what have you done with it? I'm sure all sorts of fancy things. Well, I, I, we're not a super fancy restaurant. We're a comfort food restaurant. And pimento cheese is the quintessential comfort f- cheese, you know? It's old, kind of, it's like mid-century America yeah, exactly. at its height. So one thing that's perfect for us to use pimento cheese with is our fried chicken sandwich. It's just a great condiment for the fried chicken sandwich. And it makes it a lot healthier. <laughs> I think what you've done is double down on the unhealthiness of fried chicken. Right, right. Which sounds great. After we found that our pimento cheese was so great, we thought, hey, why don't we do a pimento cheese sandwich for our happy hour, for our bar? So what is your recipe? Is it really just those classic three ingredients, just like shredded cheese, mayo, and some pimento? No. <laughs> we use... Cream cheese, cheddar cheese, Parmesan cheese, Worcestershire sauce, miso, smoked salt, cayenne. And then instead of the, the traditional red pepper, uh, roasted red pepper pimentos, we do a green pimento, which is green olives, 
jalapeno chilies, poblano chilies, roasted, of course, some scallions, and oh, I already said green olives. Yeah, and that, that's it, yeah. So you said, you said this was kind of simple. That's like you've got miso in it. I don't think that's in the original Our, recipe. Ours is not simple. <laughs> All right, talking about this makes me desperately want to try one. It's uh, about 11 a.m., and I haven't literally eaten anything to prepare my belly for this. Definitely. All right, it looks... Delicious. It's actually, it's nice. It's a more diminutive sandwich than I'd expect. I spent some time in New Orleans, and I, I don't think I've ever had a sandwich of this small in the South. But it is really beautiful looking, actually. It's round. It's uh, nice and grilled and buttery on the outside. And it's in this cast iron, a small cast iron skillet. And tell me, actually, um, it looks like there's stuff on it, or is that all mixed into the cheese in there? The, the cheese is already mixed with all the green chilies and green onions and olives that I told you about before. This has our bacon and then a couple of little pickles on the side. Because it wasn't rich enough with the cheese and peppers and miso. Bacon is always better. All right, we'll see. Here we go. Well, it's not like I didn't expect to love it on account of its mainly fat and smoked pork product, but it's really good. Yeah. A little salty. Is that pretty typical of uh, pimento cheese? It's a little salty, but nothing over the top. Oh, I'm getting the heat on the back end right now? Yeah, it's always good. I feel like <laughs> I feel like if the Atlanta Falcons are eating this, I don't know, is that a, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? It might slow them down a little on the field. I think that might slow them down. That's definitely beer drinking food. <laughs> this is for after the Super Bowl, guys. Sean Yance, executive chef at Plan Check Restaurant in Los Angeles. And of course, I wish good luck to both teams in the Super Bowl. Even though if the Falcons won, I would feel justice had been served and my own city avenged. That's big of you. Thank you. And by big, I mean strange. (laughs) And now the guest list in which an interesting person or persons lists some interesting things. Or thingses. Sure. And this week, our guests are the duo John Early and Kate Berlant. They're stand-up comedians and actors and absurd video makers. Mm. John just starred in the TV comedy Search Party, which wound up on a bunch of year-end best-of lists. And Kate nabbed a spot on Variety's annual list of 10 comedians to watch. But most importantly, they are best friends forever and ever until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Here they are to tell us about their latest project and their list. Hello, this is Kate Berlant. Your voice is so buttery. I, I know. I do have a you. voice for radio. And my name is John Early, the one with the shrill voice. We made a mini-series called Five, Five, Five. Five short films. And these orbit this idea of desperation and... People clawing their way towards fame. Clawing towards fame and probably never getting there. So for our guest list, we have chosen three pieces of film and television that we love passionately that are kind of of the same oeuvre. Wow, John, French? Now, I want to be clear. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's, it's all, they all kind of are about Hollywood hunger, Hollywood desperation. Yes, and here they are. You know, we should just kick it off with one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, yes. Um, changed my life when I saw it as a child, Waiting for Guffman. The genius Christopher Guest film. I can imagine you as a child watching Waiting for Guffman and just soaking that up. I was obsessed with it, even though so many of the jokes I did not understand. But I was like, this is good. So Christopher Guest plays Corky, this regional theater director from hell (laughs) who like has a heart of gold. Oh, he's so sweet. And is just like talks about how he's from the big city. (laughs) 
going to the Big Apple for the first time, you know, is such an experience, you never forget it. It stays with you for your whole life. Me, you know, right out of the Navy, you know, fresh off a destroyer, uh, with a dance belt and a tube of chapstick, basically, you know, not really much to call my own. Then... <laughs> a huge moment of desperation that I think about that's kind of so heartbreaking is when Corky is assembling this cast and then he gathers them all together with this huge news and announces that he's received a letter from some theater in New York City and that they're sending Mr. Mort Guffman to view the production and enlighten us with his comments. And everyone's like, what's going on? Like, what does this mean? And Corky turns to them and he's like, what it means is we may be going to Broadway. And everybody <laughs> freaks out. And it just infuses the rest of the movie and the whole performance with this heartbreaking <laughs> anticipation of what's to come. Because it's, you know, shot like a proper documentary, part of the magic of watching it is you're, like, watching these completely brilliant improvisers do their thing in real time. It's not cutting away. Their performances aren't made in editing. It's, like, it's so magical. Very nice. Very, that was... Very good. Thank you. Okay, our next pick is the iconic... Paul Verhoeven, Joe Esterhaus movie, Showgirls. It's about this girl, Nomi Malone, played by Elizabeth Berkley of Say by the Bell fame. She dances at the Cheetah, a strip club, and um, she gets this chance to be a showgirl, like a proper like Las Vegas showgirl. And, and it all happens so, so comically fast. fast. She like shows up, she's like, what am I gonna do? <laughs> and then that night, she's dancing yeah, in, a, totally. in a show. It was supposed to be this huge, sexy hit that was going to be Elizabeth Berkley's breakout performance, but it was, like, panned universally. It ruined her career because her performance is bonkers. Like, it's... But uh, but I think it's one of the... I'm like, and I'm not being cute. I really think it's, like, one of the great performances of all time. She's so deeply committed. There's not a moment in her eyes. She does not hold back at all. At all. I mean, the iconic, what is it, when they're having dinner and she freaks out with the burger and the fries. Oh, and yeah, yeah. like, where are you from? Back east. From where back east? Different places. A lot of movies that are, like, so bad that it's good or, like, guilty pleasures, they run out in, like, 30 minutes. Right, you're kind right. of The fun of, like, watching something ironically just, like, dissipates immediately. But Showgirls holds through because it actually is a well-structured movie. The cinematography is exquisite. Also, I mean, the dancing in it is so great. Yeah, the dancing. It's like truly and well-filmed dance. Yeah. It's the best. And there's so much sweat. It's like yeah. makeup on top of sweat. <gasps> and oh she's just God. glistening. I know. And it's so good. It's so much about Las Vegas, which is this kind of ultimate example of an underbelly of, of Hollywood. Number three. I'm going to give it over to John Early because this, this is a show that John Early introduced me to. Thank you. It's um, HBO's The Comeback. It's so funny. I mean, it's the funniest thing of all time. It stars Lisa Kudrow in a in a role that she created for herself, Valerie Cherish. This here is my People's Choice Award that I got for I'm It. And it means a lot to me because it's from the people. And she's this woman who was on a semi-successful sitcom. And then she gets this offer to like have cameras follow her around as she kind of makes her return to the sitcom world. So it's a reality show about her 
doing a new sitcom. No one was buying you living with these kids. Uh-huh. So now um, it's two young girls and two young guys, and you're the aunt who lives upstairs. Okay. <laughs> Boom. So much information. My head's gonna explode, you know. Okay, so, um, all right, so now I'm the aunt. Mm-hmm. Aunt Sassy. I think that people always come back to this trope, like the Hollywood failure success trope, because it's just a very nice, clean metaphor for life. <laughs> I know, absolutely. This is like you have one shot. Yeah. And like, most people don't make it. And yeah. it's like very comforting to watch people not make it. It's like, oh, look, they're failing. Right. And, like, it's okay. John Early and Kate Berlant, their new very absurd miniseries 555 is out now on Vimeo. By the way, that show is produced by Tim and Eric, another comedy duo with weird and wonderful stuff in their DNA. That's right. And you can find our interview with those guys on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And that concludes the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. This episode would not exist without senior producer Jackson Musker, along with associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Our interns are Kathleen McGovern and Emerald Douglas. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Never shy about addressing current events, a couple weeks back, indie music giants Arcade Fire released a new song called I Give You Power. It features rhythm and blues great Mavis Staples. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm your new intern, Caroline. Ba, ba, ba. This is going to be a problem. Yeah.